hey there, everyone. This is Dave DeBow with another episode of the Property Profits Real Estate Podcast. And today it is my pleasure to be interviewing a fellow real estate entrepreneur, author, and raising capital specialist, Mr. Matt Faircloth. How are you doing today, Matt? I am awesome, Dave. Thank you so much for having me here. My pleasure. You know what? I'm a big fan already because I ran out. I bought Matt's book, Raising Private Capital. I am partway through it and I am loving every page of it. So Matt, love having you on the podcast here, my friend. So thank you. That, that aren't familiar with you yet, just tell us very, very briefly a little bit about your background because you've been doing real estate for at least 15 years. How about 15 years. Yeah. First of all, Thank you for picking up a copy of the book. That's an honor and I'd love to hear what you think of it. So I started investing in 2005 when I quit my job. I was a traveling salesman for a company called Ingersoll Rand. They made you know large equipment that went in factories. It was a fun job. I got to see how things were made. I went in a lot of factories and a lot of manufacturing operations, met a lot of great people, but my soul wasn't in it, you know? And so I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, which my girlfriend, now wife, had given me a copy of and I loved it. And I was like, this is changing my life. And this is completely can't look back now. And I, I love what the possibilities of this book is opening up for me. And so in 2005, when my wife and I got married, I quit my job and started the DeRosa Group, which is a real estate investment company. And so since then, my wife and I have been full-time investing and, and a building up, built our investment company and done all kinds of fun stuff from apartment buildings to single family homes, to mixed use buildings, to land deals, to office complexes, which I'm sitting in right now, my office building. And we scaled up and grew over time. We didn't just jump in and do big deals first. We did you know, small deals and worked our way up through real estate. So it's been a fun journey. Excellent. So tell us a little bit, I know from your book and your bio, you started your whole real estate journey with a $30,000 loan, I believe, from a family member. And since then, you've done like, I think, $40 million worth of yeah. transactions using other people's money. So you definitely dialed it in when it comes to raising capital. How did that start? Sure. So, well, first of all, the $30,000 loan that we got was from my girlfriend's father. And so I don't recommend that your listeners go to their girlfriend or boyfriend's parents and ask them for money. It just happened to work out that way that I ended up marrying her and made, you know, made an honest woman of her and all that kind of stuff. So that was our first private loan was from her dad to buy our first true rental property in Philadelphia when we first got started. We scaled up over time. We did a lot of small deals and then we started doing larger deals, which is where the dollar amount, the 40 million in transactions started to double up pretty quickly. And that once we got into larger deals, but what I want to put out there to your listener base is that you don't have to go buy a $10 million apartment complex to be in real estate or to be right. a syndicator, to be raising capital for investing. You can start small and you can, you know, get into this business in bite-sized chunks and it scales quickly. And so we scaled up slowly and built up a business over time. And I'm, I'm happy we did it that way. Excellent. Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. And and what I find with a lot of my clients up here in Canada, it's, it's the mom and pop real estate investor. They self-finance their first one or two or three little single family homes or up down duplexes or whatever it is. And they run out of cash or credit to do more deals. And that's when they really need to start tapping into other people's money. So we were talking a little bit off camera about this. And you know, some of the big problems I see with people up here in Canada when they first get into raising capital is that they they go about it wrong and they risk running afoul of what we have up here, our, our 
provincial securities commissions mm -hmm. by you know going out to the general public and basically trying to raise capital without a license. So there are certain rules and regulations around that. What are some of the big mistakes you see people making when they first kind of tiptoe into this south of the border? Well, aside from going, I love that you called it south of the border. <laughs> I've never heard it, never heard America called that before. But you guys call it like the lower 48 or the lower something sometimes. <laughs> you guys have the best names for us. We have no names for Canada aside from Canada. You guys have the best nicknames for America, you know, for the United States down here that I think is so cool. But anyway, south of the border. First, I already mentioned going too big too fast. Yeah. That's a major mistake I've seen people make. I also think that people go in too many different directions at once. So trying to buy, okay, I'm going to go buy single family homes and that's going to be my direction. Oh, you know what? I want to buy apartment buildings. Oh, you know what? I want to buy a land deal or whatever. But doing too many different directions of real estate investing at a time, that's mistake number two. And I think that, as you said, just not knowing the rules, and it's funny, a lot of the rules in America are very similar to the rules in Canada about you know, having to properly file yourself. And then if you break those rules, you're pretty much setting yourself up as selling securities without a license and that. So just not having an advisor in place like yourself or like a good lawyer or whatever, they can tell you what the rules are and, and to go out and start raising money from people willy-nilly without really knowing exactly what you can and can't say to people, not having the right documents in place. So those are my mistakes that I think people would make, going too big too fast, not going too many different directions and not knowing the rules and having a team to help you with those rules. And I mean, are the rules really radically different from one state to the other? Or is it pretty much similar across In the board? U.S., it's all the same. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, there's different filings and, and conversations you got to have with people in different states. Like, I'll give you an example. So we're raising, we raised for an apartment building a couple of months ago, right? And one of our investors was in Oregon. And in, in the state of Oregon in the U.S., he cannot enter an investment agreement like that by himself. His spouse has to sign a community property waiver, right? Oh, yes. So he had to have his spouse sign off on this community property waiver to be in on the deal. In other states in America, there is no community property waiver for him to sign in that. So there are nuances that go state to state. And it's extremely important in the US to have an attorney that knows, well, okay, then my attorney put, in letterhead to the investors when they reviewed our investment documents that if you live in these states, you have to sign this piece of paper. And if you live uh -huh. here, you have to do this. But it's not like, okay, if you live in Arizona, you got to do this. If you live in Mexico, you got to do this. It's just certain states have a few add-on things that people have to deal with when they raise money from investors. But for the most part, it's the same. So Matt, you focus on apartment buildings, larger deals, probably doing syndication type stuff when it comes to raising capital. What about the mom and pop real estate investor who's raising capital to buy, let's say, a single family home? Yep. They just need maybe one investor on board and perhaps, you know, up here what we do is we, we, we sometimes bring the investor partner on board. They qualify for the finance and the property goes into their name. We're secured with a, a caveat on title, something like that. How would somebody get started in the States with that level of raising capital? Yeah. So yeah. here's what we did that same thing, right? So my first investment with a passive investor was $50,000. He wasn't even passive. He was just a private equity investor. And I think that in the US, if your equity investor is active at all in your deal, it's not a security. And so the, the key to that is just simply, if you've got somebody investing equity in your deal, give them something to do. Give them, give them a role in the deal. 
having them directly take title is probably not something I've seen very often as you guys have in Canada because the title rules in America are a little more absolute, meaning like if the investor has title, that is their deal. They're in control. Whereas in Canada, there's probably some caveats and carve outs, like as you had said, where the syndicator still can have some control and make the decisions, even though the investor has title. I like that because the investor has collateral. That's an issue that we have is that when someone's investing in the deal, they actually don't have true collateral. All they have is the operating agreement for the LLC that they bought into. But in our, in our country, what you can do is just simply, like for my first deal, a guy put in $50,000. We bought two townhomes in Trenton, New Jersey. You know, he helped keep the books on the properties. He ran the finances. He also personally guaranteed the mortgage alongside me. Those two things by themselves made him defined as an active investor. And that made it not a security. Now you can scale that up over two or three investors. If you've got some mom and pops that are looking to scale up a bit, it's hard to do that kind of thing for 40 investors, but for one to two to three investors, you could likely give them something to do to make them active in your deal. All right. So, and then otherwise, if they're not going to be active in the deal, then you're going to be doing this a corporate structure, something yep. along those lines, right? And they're going yep. to be shareholders. Exactly. Yeah, they're going to be shareholders in the deal. Yeah. And they're, they're just going to be passive investors or limited partners is what we call them, just or, or member shares, whatever you want to call it. Very cool. Now, we've got a few loopholes up here in Canada with regards Ooh. to who you, can, who you can have on board. So I'd love to compare notes on your loopholes compared to our loopholes. Well, yeah, tell loophole. me about them. But close friends, family members, business associates is one of those loopholes that we like to work in. Those people we can bring on board as investor partners and it not be considered a security. All right. So I wish here. you could do that here. Yeah. Caveat here. I'm not a lawyer, not an accountant. And not a not working for the Securities Commission, so this is my understanding of how things work, right? So neither am I a lawyer or a CPA. <laughs> let's, let's put both those things out there. Go ahead. Yeah. So so nothing nothing directly like that in the states that you're. Yeah. Well, so let me ask you a question. This is an interesting conversation, and one of those tangents you said we might go on, right? Yeah. What What is a close friend? That's the good question. That's why it's kind yeah. of a gray area, right? It's a bit of a gray area. So yeah, yeah. It's so that's interesting. So here's the way it works with us. You can raise money one of two ways. You can raise money from only accredited investors. You guys have yeah. investor accreditation. Okay. Yes, they do. That's another. That's another loophole there, right? So that's what we have too. So only accredited investors, and then the bar on what you have to do is extremely low. You know, if only you raise money from accredited investors. Now, there's also some leeway there on how you define the accreditation for that investor, how you validate it. Yeah, how you prove Sometimes that they actually are. We just do self-stated. Where the, if the investor tells me they're accredited and they sign off on a form that says, yes, I'm accredited and I know what accredited means. And then you define the accreditation in the form that they're signing that says, yes, I meet all those things and, and I sign here. Other syndicators like to take it one step further and actually have third-party validation, meaning like show me your tax returns, right. show me your bank statements to validate the accreditation. We don't do any of that. So if you're accredited, dealing with accredited investors, then you can pretty much solicit investments, you can market, you can fly a banner that says, I buy apartment buildings and you should too kind of thing. Um, right, right, right. If you don't, if you're going to take friends and family that might not be accredited, then you're raising money from what's called sophisticated investors in the US. But they, need, they still need to be able to state that they have a wherewithal 
and that they have some background, some education, some mental capacity, everything like that to handle what it is they're getting themselves into. But I think that that's gray area number one, right? But the biggest gray area there is in, in this whole thing is you have to have something called a pre-existing relationship with these sophisticated investors, right? right. But there's no SEC law that defines, just like there's nothing says that, that says in your world what a close friend is, there's nothing in our SEC that says what is a pre-existing relationship, mm-hmm. you know? Now, I've developed something that in my world called the three-touch rule, you know, that, and it, but that doesn't exist. The SEC doesn't have that definition, but I do, in saying, if I'm working with an investor and I'm going to put them in the pre-existing relationship bucket, I want to have three touches with them, right? So a touch could mean an email that was sent and responded to. It could be a phone conversation or a, um, a face-to-face meeting, right? And one of those touches has to be a face-to-face meeting or a phone conversation on which we discuss their goals and where we're going as a company and everything like that. So that's the way I've defined it internally. But the SEC doesn't really give you much guideline. The SEC in America, they allow the courts to define these things. Yeah. So that's, you know, speaking to, to a security specialist here in Canada, he said, you know, really bottom line is where you're going to get in trouble is when you lose somebody, their money, and they complain to the securities commission. That's, that's when. That's what they're going to do. Yeah. That's. Yeah. And so I've got, yeah, I don't have the, the three touch rule, but it's when I'm working with clients, I say, okay, when we're creating that list of people with a pre existing relationship, they should be, when they see the name, a face should pop into their mind. They should actually know who that person is and not feel like punching them in the face, right? So that's, that's kind of the, that's the, the starting line of how do we know if we got a decent pre-existing relationship? But I like that. Yeah. It's tough when you scale though. I mean, you yeah. know, when you're where I'm at, where you get a lot of investors that are showing up that want to work with you, you know, and when the mom and pops that you're working with end up you know, getting more and more deals, more and more investors, because that's what's going to happen. You start talking on stages, you go on a lot of podcasts, whatever. A lot of people are going to figure out that what you're doing and they want to be a part of the conversation. They want to be a part of it, right? Yeah. So at the end of the day, that's kind of one of those things that you have to, to mitigate is how do you build business systems around developing these pre-existing relationships in a streamlined manner yeah. to where when somebody comes up to invest with you, it's not like, hey, I have to have a 10-year relationship with somebody you know, for them to invest with me, how do you create that pre-existing relationship with somebody who shows up on your doorstep? You know? Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely well said there. So in the last couple of minutes we got here, Matt, and I told you time flies when we're having fun, my friend. So we'll have to, we'll have to definitely come back and revisit your whole process of raising private capital. But I think we can probably agree that one of the safest areas to go after or safest categories is an accredited investor. Yeah. So any quick tips on, you know, for the, the mom and pop real estate entrepreneur out there that wants to start raising capital from accredited investors. It's t- I, li- listen, they full disclosure, I've never raised money just from accredited investors. Mm-hmm. Although, you know, we raised money for a winery. We did a winery deal, a winery hotel and golf course in South Jersey that was accredited only. And I found that to be a different conversation and we had to turn a lot of people away. So if you've got mom and pop that's looking to raise money and they're, they're debating, okay, do I want to go accredited? And have less hurdles and less, you know, securities conversations and stuff like that. Or do I want to go not accredited or just accredited and not accredited and open up the floodgates to have more people able to be involved, right? That's the crossroads that you're at. 
And we've always chosen the latter about opening up the floodgates. We're probably going to be moving to more accredited based conversations, but in doing that, you're going to be excluding people. Of course. Um, because in the, I, I would suppose the same things in Canada, the majority of people in the U S that have wealth to put into deals and have money to put into a deal, it's likely in their retirement account. And it's up to us as syndicators to educate people. Hey, listen, did you know you can take your, in America, it's called an IRA, that you can take your IRA account and run it through a self-directed custodian and put it into my deal. And they'll love that. The thing is, is they, they might not qualify in the US to be accredited is over a million dollars net worth, right? And this person could have a half a million sitting in their IRA but that along with whatever they have in investable cash. Oh, and the accredited thing in America, the million doesn't count your home. You can't exactly. count your house. Yeah, very, very similar. Yeah. Yeah. So, but that, you know what, where do most people that are, you know, middle income or high end to middle income keep their wealth, retirement accounts and in their home, home right? That's yeah. right. So you're excluding one of the largest sources. And I'm not saying the SEC should do that. I think it's good that they're doing that. But the other one is their retirement account. And so, we want to be able to give them access to that. And so that's the main reason why we've chosen the non-accredited path is because we want to give people access to another source of investing with their retirement accounts. It's probably my biggest you know, source of investments is retirement accounts. So that, that's why we've always gone non-accredited. So, but I am at the crossroads because I think it'll allow me to market more and brand more. And that's something any other investor that you deal with on your side would have to have that conversation with themselves about, you know, how do you want to put yourself out there? Definitely. Definitely. Matt, great, great stuff. Again, really enjoying the book. I look forward to interviewing you again in a few months and, and we can go more in depth. Love to. And in the meantime, if people want to find out more about Matt Faircloth and how to get your book and how to find out more about you, what should they do? Just simply, everything's on DeRosa Group's website, my company, derosagroup.com, D-E-R-O-S-A-G-R-O-U-P.com, derosagroup.com. They can actually link over to buy the book on the website. They can check out my YouTube channel on the website. They can check out my wife's podcast, which is dedicated to real estate investing journey, the real estate investing journey of a woman called the Real Estate Invest Her Show. And they can also, if they want to hear more about investments that we have to offer, they can begin that journey there on our website as well. Awesome. Matt, thank you so much. Really appreciate your time on the call today. Thank you, Dave. This has been great. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to doing it again. All right, everybody. Take care, and we'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye. Well, thanks very much for checking out the Property Profits podcast. If you like what we're doing here, please head on over to iTunes, subscribe, rate us, and leave us a review. We very, very much appreciate it. And if you're looking to create a regular flow of inbound investor inquiries about your real estate deals, then I invite you to attend one of my upcoming live online demonstrations. And you can check that out at InvestorAttractionDemo.com. Take care.